Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines, that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. And they came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for they were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and the people followed him, trembling." He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, Bring the burnt offering here to me, and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord your God commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. And they went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. We'll stop there. Let's pray and once again ask God's blessing upon our time this morning. Lord, we thank you again for the opportunity to gather. We thank you for the gift that is your word. Lord, very often we don't consider what it would be like to live our lives without access to it. But you have given it to us because you love your people and you would have us to know you, to know your son, to know the great salvation that is available in him that he has accomplished for his people, and so we praise you for that. We thank you that we can gather as those called saints set apart as holy in the Lord Jesus. We ask you to bless this time that the people would see your King, the Lord Jesus, all the more clearly from this text. We thank you again for all of your blessings in Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, last week we saw Israel go down to Gilgal after the defeat of Nahash, and the people were in a celebratory mood because they had been delivered from their enemies. But we saw that God still had a controversy with them, that they had not adequately dealt with their sin of demanding a king from chapter 8. They left that assembly in chapter 8 having been admonished but not having actually repented. 
And so after God saved them from Nahash, they were ready to sort of move on and forget about the fracture that existed in their relationship to God. They were celebrating and rejoicing in the fact that they now had a king to save them. That's where their mindset was. So we said they had no sensibility to their sin or to their guilt. And so Samuel came as God's representative and he sought to make them sensible of their sin by enacting a covenant lawsuit against them. And in that lawsuit, Samuel, as you recall, started by vindicating his own lifetime of faithful ministry. And then he vindicated God's faithfulness to God's side of the covenant with them. And then after reminding them of their sinful demand for a king, he brought in that miraculous thunderstorm to destroy their crops during harvest time. And so we said that God gave them very tangible and menacing reminders of Sinai and the demands of the Mosaic Covenant, that if they did disobey, they would be cursed. And even we said in his role as mediator, Samuel was not able to actually secure the blessings of the covenant for them. He reminds them of what God has promised to do, to keep them as his treasured people, but also reminds them that that is contingent upon their fulfilling the things written in the book of the law to do them. And so as we come to the end of, came to the end of chapter 12, the uncertainty of Samuel's final words there sort of casts a shadow that's going to stretch out over today's text. And the words were these, If both you and your king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. And so the events of chapter 13 are going to determine the fate of this king, this first king of Israel. Will he follow the Lord his God, or will he do wickedly and be swept away? And I've broken the exposition up into four headings this week. First, we're going to see a belated battle. Second, a precarious providence. Third, a sinful sacrifice. And fourth, a dynasty destroyed. So then, let's begin with a belated battle in verses 1 to 4. Belated children is a word that means something is long delayed or overdue. And I want to begin by pointing out some subtlety that is communicated to us through the information in verse 2. Take a look at verse 2. Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Now remember, when the people demanded a king back in chapter 8, do you recall that the Lord responded by listing out all of the ways that the king which they were choosing and kingship throughout Israel's history would serve as a curse to them? And one of the specific things that he said, Samuel said, was that the king would, quote, take your sons and appoint them to, your to his chariots. In other words, the king would create a standing army uh, filled with the young men of the nation who he's going to conscript into it to serve him. And now, remember, in the battle with Nahash, Saul called all of Israel out to fight, right? We said that 300,000 Israelites and 30,000 men of Judah assembled themselves together. They came out and were united as a single army for probably the first time since the conquest of Joshua. But now we read in verse 2 that not everybody gets to go home. Saul chooses 2,000 men and stations them in Michmash, and 1,000 go with Jonathan to Gibeah. So in other words, what the text is telling us is that now we have full-time soldiers who live in barracks and garrisons on the king's dime. Now, it's true that this is not a massive amount of men. It's just a couple thousand at this point. But the principle is at work nonetheless. The king will have his pick of the young men from the families in Israel. Now, the action begins in verse 3. 
where we read, Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard about it. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. Now the progression of events here is, is really simple. Jonathan attacks a garrison of the Philistines who are in Israel. The Philistines hear about this attack back home, and they intend to respond. And so Saul knows that they intend to respond, and he sends word out to all Israel to get ready to assemble for battle at Gilgal. Now on the surface, this might just seem like another one of those Old Testament stories where somebody in Israel is about to start fighting the Philistines again. But the specifics of what just happened are incredibly significant for understanding how Saul's life is going to unfold. Remember at his anointing, God told Saul that Saul's purpose was to save the people of Israel, particularly from the Philistines. He didn't say the Amalekites or the Syrians or the Edomites. He may engage in battles with some of those peoples, but God singled out the Philistines as the specific people that Saul would be raised up to fight. And then Samuel, after his anointing, told Saul to go to Gibeah, where he would find a garrison of Philistines, and that he was to do what his hand found to do, to destroy them. And the purpose was that in attacking this garrison of Philistines, Saul would provoke a war with the nation of Philistia. And then he, Saul, endowed with the Spirit, would rise up and deliver a final crushing blow to the Philistines. And in doing so, he would save Israel from their oppressive rule and validate his anointing all at the same time. But of course, Saul did not attack that garrison. And so there was never a climactic conflict between he, Israel, and the Philistines. Now God, as we said uh, two weeks ago, did go on to validate Saul's anointing by raising him up to defeat Nahash the Ammonite. But Nahash was an Ammonite. He was not, in other words, a Philistine. And so at this point, Saul has still not fulfilled the primary purpose for which God anointed him. Israel is still being oppressed by the Philistines specifically. Now we're going to develop that point a little further in just a few minutes. But let's go back and look at the text again with that background in mind. Here we read that Jonathan attacks a garrison of Philistines. And what is the result of his attack upon the garrison? Exactly what was supposed to happen in chapter 10. It provokes a national conflict between Israel and Philistia. In other words, Jonathan has just done exactly what Saul was supposed to do a few chapters ago. And as a result, the Philistines are getting ready to invade and Saul is gathering all of Israel to respond. Again, this should have happened when Saul was first anointed by Samuel. So this battle, you could say, is belated. It is overdue. And the fact that Jonathan had to step forward and accomplish this task that was given to Saul should be a, uh, give us a little clue or a foreshadowing of what Saul is going to do in this text, whether he will or will not show himself faithful. But nevertheless... Here we go. Israel and Philistia are ready for battle, and Saul will finally have his chance to prove his quality once and for all. And that brings us to the second point, a precarious providence, starting in verse 5. Verse 5 shows us the strength of the Philistine war machine. It says this, And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand of the seashore in multitude. Now, the point, of course, is to emphasize the strength of the Philistine military forces. At this particular time period, uh, the Philistines were at the height of their power in history. After the reign of David, they're going to slowly decline, 
and the Neo-Babylonian Empire under Nebuchadnezzar is going to destroy what's left of them centuries later. But right now in this text, they are mighty and they are well equipped for war. The Philistines, history tells us, and, and we see this in the Bible, were very skilled at working with metals like bronze and iron. You think of the, uh, when we're going to see Goliath in a few chapters, the text will go on to describe all the intricacies of his armor in chapter 17. They seem, the Philistines, uh, to also have a much stronger central government than Israel has. And, and so from a human perspective, they could easily amass large sums of troops to respond to threats. And so once again, this barbaric, war-loving people has gathered out in full strength to march against Israel. Now, as we have seen in Israel's history time and time again, God very often puts His people, this people, in a position that seems precarious to human reason, where they seem completely outnumbered and overmatched militarily. And whenever that is the case, what is always the temptation? To flee and to run and to panic. And so it's no surprise that we see Israel doing just that in this text. Verse 6 says, When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and holes and rocks and tombs in, and in cisterns. So in other words, the people see this wave of chariots rolling over the hills uh, heading in their direction and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the sea. Israel is assembled together at Gilgal. That is one location. But the Philistines are not restricted to one location. They're able to spread out and to advance from multiple fronts, as verse 17 is going to indicate. Now, doesn't this feel familiar? This is just like in chapter 7, when Samuel had assembled all the people at one location, at Mizpah. And there, Samuel interceded for the people as the Philistines pressed in around them, and God saved them through that divine thunderstorm. And at the end of that episode, what did Samuel do? He erected the Ebenezer Stone as a memorial to God's salvation. And one of the things we noted in that chapter was that there were actually a series of memorial stones all throughout the nation of Israel from various points in their history that were memorializing previous acts of God's faithfulness. And one of those stones was where? Right here in Gilgal. That's where Joshua put the stones when they crossed the Jordan into the land. So in other words, the exact place that they are assembled at today has a monument sitting right in front of them of God having provided salvation in the past. But what do the people not do in the midst of their precarious providence? They don't remember. They can't get past their carnal fear. And so they are reduced to the pathetic spectacle of looking for little holes in the ground or throwing themselves into graves and covering themselves with dead men's bones. If that's not a metaphor for their spiritual condition, I don't know what is. Now, for others of the Israelites, graves and rocks and cisterns weren't necessarily a good enough hiding place, and so they actually run all the way to the other side of the Jordan. Verse 7 says, Some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Now, this is a sad sight. Absolutely no faith in God on display here. And so where does that leave Saul? Well, verse 7 concludes, Saul was at Gilgal, and the people followed him, trembling. Even those who stayed with him in Gilgal are trembling in their boots at this point. So now Saul has a decision to make, which brings us to our third point, by far the longest, a sinful sacrifice. Verse 8 says, He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, and Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. Now, let me set the context for what's about to happen. Saul is at Gilgal, 
And the text says that Saul waited seven days as directed by Samuel. Now, what is this referring to? Well, back in chapter 10, when Samuel told Saul to go and destroy that Philistine garrison, Samuel concluded his instructions to Saul by saying this, Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I'm coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come. The instructions were clear. Once you leave the hill of Gibeah, you go to Gilgal and you wait seven days until I arrive. And now Saul is at Gilgal and the seven days are up. But there's something here that's actually confused uh, Christians and non-Christians alike as they, look at this, as they look at this text. There's seemingly no way that it's only been seven days from the events of chapter 10 when Saul was first anointed and the events of today's text. Just consider what all's happened in between. After fleeing from failing to kill the Philistines and fleeing from Gibeah, Saul traveled home on foot to his farm for a conversation with his uncle. Then Samuel called all of the nation out to Mizpah, and everyone had time to travel there. That was where they found Saul hiding behind the baggage. Then they all had time to travel back home on foot. Then Nahash the Ammonite began an assault on Jabesh Gilead. The messengers of Jabesh traveled across the country to Saul's hometown where he had already had enough time to settle back into his routine of working on the family farm. Then they tell him about Nahash. Then Saul sends out a message that has time to travel to all of the country that they are to assemble themselves together. All the people have time to travel to Jabesh engage in a, an assault upon the Ammonites. From there, Samuel tells them all to travel to Gilgal, where Samuel gives that speech we looked at the last week. Then the whole nation has time to go home. Saul chooses thousands of troops for his army, settles them into different patrol towns. Then after the troops are settled, Jonathan attacks a garrison of Philistines at Geba. Then the Philistines have time to muster their whole army. Now that was a mouthful, I know. But that did not all happen in the course of seven days. Moreover, back in chapter 10, Saul, when he received his anointing, was still living under his father's roof. What that probably means is that he was a young man and seemingly did not have a wife or children at the time. And yet in today's text, he has a son. And not only does he have a son, but the son is old enough to be leading military incursions against the Philistines. Bare minimum, 18 years old, probably in his 20s. And so what that tells us is this, that decades have probably gone by since the last time that Samuel, and, or since uh, the instructions were given to Saul about Gibeah. Now, some people have tried to make a contradiction out of this. Samuel told Saul he would meet him at Gilgal in seven days to offer sacrifices, and yet when we read of that happening today, it seems like decades have gone by, but the resolution is actually not hard to find. In chapter 10, Samuel's instructions to go to Gilgal and to start the seven-day waiting period were contingent upon Saul destroying the Philistine garrison. Why was that? because attacking the garrison would provoke the war with the Philistines. And so in other words, Samuel wasn't just telling Saul, after you come down from Gibeah, you need to go to Gilgal, regardless of what actually happens on the hill of Gibeah. What Samuel was actually telling Saul was this, when war breaks out with the Philistines, that's when you go down to Gilgal and the seven-day clock begins. But because of Saul's failure, there was no war with Philistia. And so the whole point about going to Gilgal and waiting seven days was irrelevant at that time. But now what has happened? Many years later, Jonathan has risen up and has provoked the war with the Philistines that Saul failed to instigate. And as a result, the time has now come to go to Gilgal and to wait. So do you see that? It's not a chronological contradiction. I address that because very often you'll see that online as an alleged chronological contradiction in the Bible. It's simply allowing the text to speak. 
Now, some people have objected to the resolution that I just gave and said, well, are we really to believe that Saul carried this little command about going to Gilgal and waiting seven days with him for decades? Would he not have forgotten about something like that after all this time? Well, let me say this in response. I believe that the significance of going to provoke the war with the Philistines and then traveling to Gilgal was not something that Samuel told Saul about just that one time. I believe it was part of a perpetual ongoing discourse between Saul and Samuel. And I say that because I believe that Samuel's command to go to Gilgal in response to war was supposed to be the entire point of Saul's kingship. Now, we hinted at this earlier, but I want to flesh this out a little bit so that you can see the seriousness of what Saul does in this chapter. Let me recap a little bit from chapter 8's sermon. Remember in that chapter, when Israel came to demand a king, we asked the basic question, what was so sinful about the demand for a king? Right? And we said, well, it can't be that, they were, uh, that, that the desire for a human king is inherently sinful because God himself had revealed in many prophecies that it was his intention to give Israel a human king. Rather, we said the sinfulness of the demand was in the kind of king that they wanted. They wanted a common king like all the nations. And we said that the only way to put all those, those, those threads together from the text is to recognize that in God's mind, there was a distinction between the kind of kings that he had set up in the nations of the earth and what he intended to set up in Israel, a holy king. And the reason was that Israel was not the same kind of nation as the other nations. They were common nations, while Israel was called to be a holy theocracy. And what distinguishes a common nation, such as the one that we live in, from a theocracy is that in a theocracy, God himself enters into a special covenant relationship with a nation in which he promises to bestow himself upon the people in a loving bond of communion. And they get to enjoy privileges that are unique in terms of drawing near to God and beholding his face that the other nations whom God has not entered into such a covenant do not possess. No nation, in other words, can designate itself as a theocracy. The formation of a theocracy is a special act of providence that is divinely initiated. Now, the nations must obey God's moral law, as we've said. That's the only foundation for any law, including civil laws. But that does not make them theocracies in the biblical definition of that term. But God did covenant with Israel that he would set himself in their midst. And so we said the goal for Israel was to have God in their midst through the, the mechanism of that temple in which he would set his presence and they would draw near to gaze upon his beauty. And the whole point, the reason I'm recapping all of this specifically, is that we said the means by which God would bring this to pass in Israel was through his king. The king would, as Moses proclaimed at the Red Sea, conquer God's holy mountain, build his temple on which he would set his presence, and then with his throne established forever before the Lord, the king would serve as the mediator of that special revelation between God and the people. Now, that's a recap of one of our sermons from chapter 8. But what does any of that have to do with Saul? Well, simply this. Saul had a chance to be that king. Saul had a chance to be that king. I want to show you that through two brief observations. First, remember we said that the reason that Israel did not have a king as soon as they got into the land was because they had not yet captured the mountain on which God would establish the king's throne and which the temple would be built. That is why the period of the judges dragged on indefinitely. They failed to complete the conquest, culminating in the capture of God's mountain throne. And what was the specific mountain that they were to capture on which God would make his dwelling place? Mount Zion, Jerusalem. 
So they failed to complete the conquest, as the book of Judges testifies. And God said that because they refused to complete the conquest, that foreigners would be a continual thorn in their side and frustration to them. And while Israel has had many antagonists from outside of them up to this point in the nation's history, what is the one group of people who has been the most consistent thorn in Israel's side to this point in their history? The Philistines. And if you pay attention, from the time, I remember when I saw this, it hit me. From the time that Samuel has been a judge in Israel, right up through Saul's anointing, the Philistines are not only described as making attacks from the outside coming into Israel, but the, we also read over and over again of them placing garrisons and making attacks from a number of different places within Israel. Places like Gibeah, Geba, Shiloh, and Michmash. And do you know what each of those places have in common? They're a part of a small... I alluded to this when I had to make a correction a couple weeks ago. They're a part of a small series of hills just north of Jerusalem. It's almost like the Philistines are both an external nuisance and this internal... I couldn't think of a better word to use, even though it kind of sounds sci-fi-like, a force field almost, that, that keeps the nation so distressed and decentralized that they can never actually launch an assault to capture Jerusalem from the remnant of the Jebusites who remained within it at this time. Consider, as soon as David does have Jerusalem in 2 Samuel, the Philistines make one last concerted effort to attack the king on his mountain by coming into the valley of Rephidim. And David crushes them. And like we said, though they continue to exist as a people, the Philistines, we never see them described again as any significant threat to Israel. Under the sovereign direction of God, the Philistines up to this point have served as an obstacle for Israel to complete the conquest. And the biblical connection is seen in King David between decisively defeating the Philistines and the establishment of the kingship on Mount Zion. But before there was a King David, God told Saul that his purpose was to defeat and crush forever the Philistines. And once you see the way that God was using the Philistines as an obstacle to completing the conquest, you understand that to crush the Philistines is to open the highways to Zion, to finish the job. So that's the first hint that God was really presenting Saul with an opportunity to be the theocratic king who would reign on God's mountain and build his house. God told him that his purpose was to crush the very people whom God had been using as an obstacle in judgment to completing the conquest of the mountain. But... The second way, and it's much shorter, that we know that God was really presenting Saul with an opportunity to be this mediatorial king who would bestow the blessing of God upon the people is very simple. God says it right here in this text. Pick forward for a moment at the second half of verse 13. Samuel says, Then the Lord would have established your throne forever. Now you have to hear that for what it says. Because I know there's probably an objection that's been running in the back of some of your minds. When I say that God was offering Saul the chance to be the mediatorial king of blessing who would be seated on Zion, build the temple, and presumably even propagate the lineage of the Messiah, some of you are thinking there's no way. And I can prove that you're wrong because long before Saul was even born, God had given prophecies of the holy king whose line would terminate in the Messiah. And he specifically said that the scepter of that kingdom would reside in the tribe of Judah. And Saul is not from the tribe of Judah. He is from the tribe of Benjamin. And so what you're saying can't be true because it would contradict the previous prophecies. 
Well, I have a very simple response to that objection that ends it before it even gets going. And it's this. God said it, not me. God says here that if Saul succeeds, his throne would have been established forever. And so if you object, well, the, the text can't be teaching that God was given Saul a genuine chance to be the king of Zion from whom the Messiah would come because God had already said the king would come from Judah. Then I say in response that your real objection here is to what God says in this text. God says his throne will be established forever. God wasn't planning on setting up two thrones in Israel. And so if there were a permanent throne for Saul of Benjamin, then by definition, there would not have been a permanent throne from Judah. So you can't just sweep God's statement under the rug here. Either he's genuinely giving Saul this opportunity or he's a liar. So then, how do you deal with the prophecies that said that the Messiah would come from the lineage of kings that would be established on the throne of Judah? Well, it's very simple. God gave those prophecies with a full knowledge of the future. He knew the, what the outcome of Saul's life would be, and so he prophesied truly in light of that. But that does not mean that in time and history, the realm that we're dealing with, that God did not offer Saul a genuine chance to be that man. Now, I recognize that we are dealing here with the relationship between God's eternal and hidden decree of what takes place in time and the genuineness, quote-unquote, of human history. And no human being is ever going to unravel that mystery because we're not meant to. But I'm going to affirm all that God says. And He says both things are true. The Messianic throne would come from Judah because of what God had decreed concerning Saul in the hidden depths of His counsel but also that Saul was given a chance, Saul of Benjamin, an authentic chance to be the father of the Messiah and to have his throne established forever. So then, at this moment in the text, take a little breath, Saul still has a chance to be the mediatorial king of glory. But in order to secure that, something is required of him. He must defeat the Philistines, yes, but that alone is not enough. In order to be enthroned as God's holy king in contrast to the common kings of the earth, he must demonstrate that he embodies those characteristics which distinguish God's theocratic king from an ordinary king. And what is the distinction between them? It's this. A holy king is one who has been established by a special act of providence and who therefore receives direct revelation from God on how the kingdom of God is to be built and established in the earth. Common kings of the earth come through power, to power through many ordinary providences. Things like winning a war or a democratic election or assassinating of their predecessor or many other means. But the man who mediates God's redemptive kingdom in the world is divinely anointed, publicly revealed, victoriously established by God's miraculous intervention in history. And all of that has happened so far with Saul. We'll see it again happen with David and preeminently in the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus. These men were directly enthroned by God and each received special revelation about how they were to build God's kingdom dwelling on the earth. And therefore, they were to be men who were wholly submitted to the Word of God in discovering how God would have them to establish His kingdom. In other words, they had to do it God's way. David was not free to organize the priests and the musicians and the gatekeepers as he saw fit when he was making preparations to build the temple. He received that revelation from the Spirit. When Moses was to build the tabernacle house of God, God told him, you make sure that you build this kingdom dwelling according to the exact pattern I have shown you on the mountain. No room for his ingenuity here. 
Same with Solomon when he built the temple. He did exactly what he received according to the divine pattern God had given David. And even David, when he wanted to build the temple, did not dare lift a finger once God told him no. You see what all those examples have in common? They show us the requirements of the one who would, whom God designates to build his redemptive kingdom upon the earth. That he dare not take any action with respect to the securing and building of that kingdom unless God himself authorizes it. In other words, he must be a man after God's own heart. Wholly faithful to God's special revelation about his role in building and establishing the kingdom. The common kings of the earth don't labor under this paradigm. They have to obey God's law in the context that God has set them, but they have not been established to build and mediate God's kingdom whereby God bestows himself on commun in communion upon sinners. And therefore, though they operate in their temporal kingdoms under the general bounds of God's law, they don't receive special divine revelation on how they are to build and establish the redemptive kingdom. So Saul has been anointed as king. And God has providentially brought him to a place where he can eliminate the Philistines, open the highways to Zion, conquer the hill, and build God's house. But like the rich young ruler in Jesus' day, one thing he lacks. He must prove that he will submit himself to the direct revelation of God no matter what. That he will not strike out on his own in the matter of securing the kingdom that he will live both spiritually and in this context, literally, by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Why does Saul need to wait at Gilgal? Because at Gilgal, God is going to reveal to him through Samuel how he must defeat the Philistines. This is exactly what Samuel had told him all those years ago in chapter 10. Samuel said to him, Once the war with the Philistines has begun, go down to Gilgal and wait seven days, and I'll come and offer sacrifices. And then Samuel says this, And I will tell you what to do. I will tell you what to do. Saul was to wait on God to tell him how to defeat the Philistines. Saul knew the general task before him was to defeat their army. But the how was not up to his discretion. The President of the United States does not have to wait for direct revelation from God when deciding how to defend the American kingdom. He's got to operate in the bounds of the law. He can't commit war crimes and things like that, injustices. But he has freedom and discretion in, in the how uh, he goes about defending America. Not so the holy kings of God's redemptive kingdom. Samuel says to Saul, don't you presume to do anything until God has spoken. Do you want the kingdom? Then God is going to have to tell you how to do it. That is the test that Saul faces. He must wait seven days, not some arbitrarily, arbitrary test that God instituted for no apparent reason. He has to wait to receive revelation. Seven is not just the number of perfection in Scripture. Very often we say that, and it is. It's the number of perfection, but it's also more than that. It is the number of consummation. Much like Adam's kingdom, Saul's kingdom would be consummated at the end of this sabbatical seven-day probation period, capped off by a decisive seventh-day act of submission to God's Word, and a striking, decisive blow to the enemies of the kingdom. And so he waits. He waits until the seventh day. And the text says that he begins to look around expectantly for Samuel, for the man who would sanctify his kingdom through an offering and who would give him instructions on how to destroy the enemy. But as the seventh day is passing, Saul doesn't see Samuel. 
and the Philistines are closing in, and the Israelites are scattering from him. And now he's confronted with a choice. On the one hand, God told him, don't you do anything until you receive divine instruction and divine blessing. And on the other hand, in his mind, God's prophet and therefore God's word have failed. Samuel has not shown up within the proper time. And so Saul thinks, if I don't act on my own terms, then we're all going to die. So in verse 9, he makes his choice. Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offering. And he offered the burnt offering. Now, what does that reveal to us about Saul? Two things. First, when the pressure is applied, he does not live by the basic principle of a man after God's own heart. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. Saul leaned on his own understanding, and he accused God's word of failure according to his own subjective interpretation of providence, that there was something he didn't understand, and therefore, rather than trusting the Lord, he leaned on himself, and he presumed to act without God's guidance. The second thing it reveals about him is this, that Saul still has a pagan conception of how God operates. Notice here, when he makes his decision, Saul doesn't say, all right, forget it. God is gone. Let's just start attacking the Philistines. He's not coming. We got we to get going. The Philistines are here. Let's just start attacking. Saul still feels the need to offer a sacrifice. He says in the verse, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. Now some of you know that phrase, uh, I have not sought the favor of the Lord. It, it literally translated in the Hebrew is, I have not softened the face of the deity. The pagans had gods of wood and stone. And when they looked at that god's face, that idol, it was hard. It was stoic. It was immovable, which was a metaphor for how they viewed the gods as hard, cruel, and oriented against them, and who had to have their faces softened by the worshipers by receiving something they wanted, sacrificial food. Sacrifices, as we talked about earlier on in this book, were sort of the pagan lever to control the gods and to make them favorable. It didn't matter how you lived. As long as you pulled the lever, you could soften the deity's face. And Saul knows that he's about to disobey. He knows that he's about to strike out on his own, but he still feels the need to placate the deity as if he can disobey but still get the results he's looking for through a right form of sacrifice. That is how pagan kings conceive of the relationship between the gods and warfare. In his heart of hearts, God, Saul does not know the true God and thinks that God is one like himself. He's not a man after God's own heart. And if he were going to take up the mantle of God's redemptive holy king, then he had to show that his most fundamental conviction was that the kingdom belonged to God, not to him. That he was simply an instrument to administer the kingdom of the great king. And he would have to reflect God's greater glory and not his own, the exact opposite of how the kings of the earth view their kingdoms. Saul has shown himself to be a king like the kings of the earth, just as God prophesied that he would back in chapter 8. Now, how different is this? This self-centered and presumptive attitude toward God's kingdom from that which is displayed later, later on by David. When David is attacked by these same Philistines in 2 Samuel chapter 5, David does not presume to confront them without divine instruction. Listen to what these verses say. The Philistines had come up and they, they'd spread out in the valley of Rephidim. And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? 
And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. And David came to Baal Perazim, and he defeated them there. You see, he sought divine revelation for the defense of the kingdom. But this becomes even clearer because we read in the very next verse, And the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephidim. An identical situation to the one that we just read about. Philistines coming into the valley. Now surely David could have reasoned in his mind, I just inquired of the Lord last time in this exact situation, and he told me to go attack them head on. No need to inquire again. I'm just going to do the exact same thing that I did last time. But the text says this, And when David again inquired of the Lord, the Lord said, You shall not go up, but you shall go around the rear and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when you hear the sound of marching in the top of the trees, then rouse yourself, for then the Lord has gone out before you and will strike the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded and struck them down. Now, if ever there were a point to presume to act, it would have been this exact situation, would it not? But if David had done so, if he had attacked them head on under the auspices of presumption, then he would have been defeated. Because God said, I'm giving you victory if you go around the back of them. What a contrast. David knew that the kingdom was the Lord's and that as king, his duty was to live by every word that came from the mouth of God. And that brings us to the final point, and it's much shorter. Fourthly, a dynasty destroyed. Starting in verse 10, having failed this probationary test, Samuel now emerges and reveals that Saul's kingdom will not be consummated. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offerings, behold, Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him and to greet him. Now notice it says there that Samuel emerged as soon as Saul made the sacrifice. Now what does that tell you? It's not outside of the realm of possibility that the prophets can transport. We've technically seen that in the past, but there's, there's a good chance that Samuel was there the whole time, sort of hiding in the shadows, so that, and Saul was sort of unaware. But nevertheless, he was there, and he was watching, and he was waiting to see. And no doubt, when the Philistines closed in on Saul, if Saul had remained faithfully obedient, Samuel would have emerged and offered sacrifices just as he did when the Philistines were coming in chapter 7. And he would have given Saul verbal instructions for conducting the battle. And he would have empowered Saul to destroy the enemies and to deliver the crushing blow. But Saul was not faithful. And so Samuel confronts him in verse 11. Samuel said, What have you done? Saul said, When I saw the people were scattering from me and that you didn't come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal. And I've not sought the favor of the Lord, so I forced myself, and I offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to him, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, which He commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. Samuel delivers God's verdict. Saul has transgressed. And as a result, his line will be cut off. He will not be, in other words, the king of blessing who consummates the Israelite covenant with God. And we're going to see the sad downward spiral that this man's life takes from this moment on. He's going to descend into demon-possessed madness. And rather than defeating the Philistines for good, as he could have in this chapter, the next chapter is going to remind us at the end that Saul had war with the Philistines all his days, culminating in his death by whom? Those same Philistines on Mount Geboa. In other words, Saul sealed his fate right here. The only reason there was still a Philistine army to kill him at the end of this book is because he failed to pass this test 
from the Lord his God. Now, was this test unfair? Was it unfair for Samuel to wait until the last possible moment on the seventh day to show up? To leave Saul in a position where his enemies are closing in, all of his closest companions are deserting him, and there is no sign of God's immediate presence visible around him. Was it unfair for God to test Adam in that way? To allow his enemy to come near and to have his closest companion, his helpmeet, betray him and to leave him to face the serpent without a visible sign of his presence there until after he had sinned? Was it unfair for God to allow Christ to be tempted by his enemies encompassing him about while all of his companions deserted him and feeling absolutely abandoned by his father? That was not unjust to the Son of God. And neither was it unjust to Saul. In all of those instances, the question was simply this. Will you obey even to the point of death? For Adam and Saul, the answer was no. For Christ, the answer was yes. And therefore, God has highly exalted him, established and consummated his throne forever and ever. And he's given him a kingdom and a dominion that will never diminish and cannot be shaken. So then, the doctrine... What do we learn from this text? There's actually a couple of doctrines we could pull out, but I'm going to focus in on one that I think is fairly straightforward and obvious. And it's this. One of the necessary results of mankind's fall into sin is that obedience to the Lord is now costly. Now this manifests itself in as many different situations as you could find yourself needing to render obedience to God, which is to say pretty much 24-7. In Saul's case... There were three specific ways that rendering obedience to the Lord would have been costly to him. First, it required him to confront a physical threat to his life. He's got a physical threat coming upon him. And if he remains obedient to the Lord, that threat will seemingly get closer and closer and in his mind could actually kill him. The second thing is that it required him to persevere through emotional and spiritual and mental stress in the face of an unknown providence. And third... It required him to endure the the cost of the faithlessness of others around him. Now, while all three of those aspects of costly obedience played sort of a unique role in today's text and the the redemptive historical aspect of the unfolding of Saul's kingdom and and God's covenant, etc., the reason that all three of those elements were present in Saul's situation, all three elements of costly obedience were present in Saul's situation, is because those are elements of costly obedience that transcend Saul's immediate circumstances. They are things that apply to any fallen creature who is seeking to render obedience to God. And so therefore, they have relevance to us as well. So then we move to the application. Now, because we're dealing with the idea of costly obedience, and there are an almost unlimited number of ways in which we'll have to counter obedience, picking a specific application runs the risk of being charged with being arbitrary. But I have to do that. And so rather than just giving a, a, a very broad general application, what, what I'm going to do is uh, I'm going to give an application that coincides with just one of those aspects of costly obedience, specifically the last one. And again, it was this. Obedience will be costly in light of the faithlessness of those around you. Now, when the seventh day arrived and there was no sign of Samuel, everyone around Saul began to abandon belief in God and act accordingly. They fled and they hid themselves rather than remaining steadfast and faithful. And Saul had to watch as person after person after person around him showed that they would not act in accordance with a life of faith and obedience. 
Every one of them began to evidence that the most fundamental conviction of their souls and the guiding principle of their lives was that of self-comfort and preservation. And as a result, the price that Saul would have to pay to render this act of obedience kept going up and up and up as every person, each successive person, begins to compromise and to abandon him. If Saul would obey... He would have to stand alone, or at the very least, in the, in, in the presence, in the company of very few others, and without the support of those who were abdicating. And while, as I said, the specific things at stake in Saul's obedience, a dynastic kingdom, that's not the same thing that's at stake in your obedience on a daily basis. The general principle transcends this story. Because very often, obedience to the God of heaven becomes costly to his children, since it requires you to stand firm without the aid of many around you and against their faithlessness in many cases, having to obey through their faithlessness in order to render it. So then, we need to be ready to face this reality in our lives. You are not like the world. You don't think like they do. By God's grace, you don't love the things that they love, and so you need to get used to the fact that people around you are very often going to think that you're insane and sometimes evil because of the prices that you're willing to pay to render obedience to God. King Jesus has already told you that this is going to happen. A servant is not greater than his master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebub, Satan, how much more will they malign those of his household? Brethren, that is the fate that your lovingly heavenly Father has chosen for you. He's ordained that you're going to be hated. And so we better settle in and get used to it. Now, there are about as many ways as it's going to manifest itself, this, this idea of obeying through the faithlessness of others. There's many different ways that it will manifest itself as there are relationships that you have with different kinds of people in the world. And so I just want to choose one category of relationship, which many of you are going to experience this temptation uh, in one degree or another, and it's this. Your relationship to especially your unregenerate especially extended family members, and, and, and very often this will manifest itself most acutely in, in the cases where you have unregenerate parents and grandparents. Now, as a Christian, if your earthly family is composed mostly of unbelievers, then at the moment you're converted, you are changed into a new man or woman, and you have an internal constitution that is now fundamentally different from those in your earthly family. And you're actually adopted, uh, praise the Lord, into a new family, the family of God. And that can create tension because now your worldview, the way that you reason, the priorities you set, the decisions you make, and the affections of your heart have become totally different from that of your earthly families. Now, if you grew up in a home with godly, where there was just godliness in generation after generation, then praise the Lord. Some of this may not apply as much to some of you. But having spoken to just about a representative from basically every family in this congregation at some point or another about your extended families, I can say that with confidence that a large percentage, if not pretty much everybody in this congregation, has family members, extended family members that are composed of a significant number of unregenerate people. And that shouldn't surprise us because Christ said that that's exactly what happened when He proclaimed that His gospel and the power of it in our hearts would have the effect of taking a sword and at times severing biological households because the gospel creates a new type of man or woman. And as you, the redeemed of the Lord, seek to offer that loving, faithful, and joyful obedience to your heavenly Father, you may often find that as you look around at your family members, some of whom may, you may have looked up to 
as authorities for decades, most of your life, they're now all of a sudden not standing with you in your pursuit of holiness. And as a knowledge of your newfound worldview and priorities begins to sort of spread, the news, the gossip at times begins to spread amongst your kin, you may find like Saul did that they're not really willing to stand by your side when the time of obedience comes. And so the cost that you might have to pay as a Christian in rendering obedience is this. You're going to have to render that obedience through the faithlessness of those who have been your close companions for much of your life. And one of the ways which this cost may manifest itself practically, is in the need to distance yourself from members of your family and potentially even cutting off relationships with them. Now let me say this at the outset. We do not desire that or rejoice in it. And I want to make it clear up front that I am not saying that you need to cut off any and all uh, uh, relationships with family members simply on the grounds that they are unregenerate. Very often that's what cults do. They make a cut-off connection with anybody in the outside world, those outside the group. But that would deny our theology of the family as something good and created by God and legitimate. As Christians, we affirm the goodness of God's family design and the institution of family relations still stands as a good thing for you as believers, even after your conversion. And so we seek to honor that and to uphold those relationships wherever possible. So do not hear me saying that you need to automatically distance yourself from any and all unbelievers. That is not what the Scripture commands. But while that is true, we do also have to recognize the reality that there are times when the antithesis between those who love the Lord and seek to serve Him and those who are fundamentally oriented to the love of self may necessitate the child of God to initiate a degree of separation from members of their biological families in order to remain faithful to the Lord. And here's a general axiom that I, that I hope will provide a framework for your thinking about your relationships with your unbelieving family. I'm going to state the axiom and then we'll conclude with some specifics, fleshing it out. Here's the axiom. For the sake of the glory of Christ and in light of the twofold duty to maintain a healthy personal communion with the Lord, and to safeguard the spiritual health and development of one's immediate family, the Christian will need to distance themselves from any persons, particularly members of their extended kin, when such persons display an ongoing, willful, and publicly visible pattern of blasphemy, personal depravity, and or undermining of the biblical ordering of the Christian's household and lifestyle. Now, I know that was a mouthful. I tried to condense it, but that was about the best that I could do. Now, that's a general axiom, but very often it helps to have particulars to help you think through the application. So then, here are some areas to consider when evaluating those whom you will bring near to your immediate household. First, consider the way that they talk to and treat one another. This will have especially acute relevance when we're talking about married couples outside of your family. What example of marriage do they model? As you observe them, do you get the impression that marriage is a miserable thing that makes two people resent one another and bicker with one another constantly? Fathers, are your sons being exposed to men who will mock and belittle their wives under the guise of jesting? Wives, are your daughters being exposed to women who will complain about their husbands when they're not in their presence, especially if they're in their presence, and conduct themselves in such a way that communicates that they run the household and they like it? What example of marriage do they set? If your children are constantly being exposed, if you are constantly being exposed, 
to those kind of degrading views of marriage and family. Consider what that's teaching and consider whether or not there's any hope that that pattern is going to change anytime soon in that family. Second, consider whether they are willing to follow the rules that you set for your children. This will obviously be especially relevant to those with children. Now this presupposes that you have rules and that you've made them clear, and you should. If you set the expectations, for example, of the amount of media that your children are allowed to consume when they're in other people's presence, of the the kinds of things that they may or may not eat uh, when they're supposed to go to bed, if, if, for example, they're spending the night with the grandparents, which, you know, we have different views on that in this congregation. But these are, there are so many different rules that will be relevant to each individual household. The point generally is you need to make those rules known as they are relevant to the members that are outside of your immediate household. And then you need to watch and evaluate. As those people interact with you and with your family, are they undermining those rules? Sometimes it's going to be explicit. You may have family members who are just going to buck them and, and make it known that they're not going to obey the rules, but very often it's going to be subtle. You know, when, when you're asking that the child not be given another snack and, and, and the lighthearted extended family members constantly going on and, on and sneaking them stuff behind the scenes, you need to take notice of those kind of things. Again, that sort of incident alone is probably not enough to make you cut off a relationship, but you need to be analyzing these things and evaluating are these people respecting the rules that are established in our household, or do they display an attitude of defiance? If they do, there's usually a much bigger root problem than just simply if the kids are going to get too many snacks or something like that. It's going to come back and manifest itself as they get older, especially. Third, consider the example of alcohol consumption that they set and their general attitude toward things like alcohol or substances in general. My boys, for example, are already, when they go out, they're, they're constantly, whenever they see people drinking bottles or stuff, they're constantly asking about that, and they especially love to ask about people who are smoking cigarettes and vaping in public. In other words, they notice these things, and they notice them from a young age. You need to be having conversations with them, and then you need to be evaluating the, the, the people who are going to be coming around them. When you go over to other people's houses, are people getting, you know, tipsy? Are they getting drunk, especially? That would be a major red flag. Is there just a even if those things aren't happening, is there a generally lax attitude toward alcohol that is displayed? Those are things that your children are going to pick up on. And those are things that, that are probably not good to expose yourself to. Even if you think, oh, I'm strong enough, I, I, those things won't have an influence on me. Very often the issue is not, could I withstand it without falling into the temptation myself? The, the, the issue is, is it wise to even expose myself to these things? Now again, we, we don't take the stance here, I think most of us in church would say, we don't take the stance that uh, the consumption of alcohol in and of itself is inherently a sin, but you know the abuses and the vice that that is for men. And so you need to be very careful before it even gets to the drunkenness level, the open public drunkenness. You need to be examining what is, what is the general worldview about this thing that's being displayed? Is it lighthearted? Is it lax? Is it something that, that if adopted by my children is going to open the door to them not actually being cautious and wise and discerning in their view of those things? So consider those kind of behaviors with those who are coming around your household. Fourthly, consider the speech that they use. Now obviously vulgarity and profanity is going to be a big red flag, but even more subtly than that, are they teaching your children speech patterns that are generally dishonoring to the Lord? Like, like, again, the marriage example. Are they taking uh, sort of jabs at one another all the time? Are they undermining each other? Uh, are, they, are they making lighthearted jokes about things that ought not to be joked about? You know, men very often will, will lather, will excuse themselves in anything they say under the guise of, what, I was just kidding. 
Are the people that you're bringing your children around always making thing, saying things that make you kind of cringe, but then saying, oh, I was just kidding, or something like that, justifying themselves? Consider the speech patterns. Fourth, fifthly, consider the kind of media that they display in your home. Now, very, I'm imagining that most of the homes that you're going to go into are not going to be displaying what we might call open, like explicitly pornographic material or something like that, for lack of a better term. But the category here is far broader than that. Uh, the commercials that are on television, even on something like a football game, really to the Christian heart, ought to be considered in the area of basically outright pornography. And so if those kind of things are constantly on display in the home of someone that you're going in, you need to consider those things. What are your boys seeing? What are your young girls seeing in the media? Or even if the content is not explicitly objectionable, is the attitude displayed and communicated by these people basically, we can't live and function in our house without the TV being on all the time. If that's the case, what is that teaching to your children? That they're dependent constantly upon the television in order to have a functioning household. These are the kind of things that you need to consider. Sixth, consider the attitude that they display toward God, including the way that they treat His name in their, with their mouths. Oh my God. How many times does that slip out of their mouths over and over again? We're so used to that, very often we get numb to it in our consciences. But don't let those things go by. You may need to pull people aside and say, hey, listen, you're taking the Lord's name in vain, and that's not going to happen around my household. And you give people a warning. Don't let those things slip under the, oh, well, who cares? It's not that big of a deal. Those kind of speech patterns will have an influence on you, and they will certainly have an influence on your children. Consider the way that they speak about God. When spiritual matters are brought up, very often we don't ex expect unregenerate people to just throw themselves into a conversation about it, granted. But do they have sort of a mocking attitude toward it? Are they always trying to make light of it? If so, you need to consider those things. You may need to have some conversations. Seventh, consider the respect or lack thereof they show for your authority as a head of household. I know this has happened to many of you in this congregation. Especially, this is especially relevant to younger folks. As you sort of are coming away from your parents and you're establishing your own family, very often you're going to start to make some initial decisions. They're going to be very different from the way that things were done in your house growing up if you're a Christian. And because you're still so young, the parents very often still feel the need to come in and start advising, start making some corrections to show you that, that, that they actually know what's best here. And they're going to start questioning what you're doing. And so you need to consider, one, even if you have no kids, is that a healthy way for my parents or anybody extended family to be viewing my relationship to my husband, my wife, and the household that I'm establishing. Do they get to come in and just openly questioning things unless they can point to a specific chapter and verse and try to rebuke you for a specific sin? If they are evaluating things according to their sinful standards and then openly questioning what you are doing, yes, it's a great opportunity to explain and to address, but you need to consider, are they, is their general attitude and worldview I have the right to come in and direct or critique the affairs of this home. They do not before God. And so you need to nip that kind of thing in the bud right away. As children get older, they're going to notice that. When grandma and grandpa are walking around always questioning all the decisions, they're going to start to say, wait a second, grandma and grandpa are older than mom and dad, and they're always questioning everything we're doing. Maybe they know better. And the seeds of doubt will get planted. So you need to address those kind of things. When they come up, heads of household, this is going to fall on you big time to address these things. And eighth and finally, do these family members insist that you make a choice between the things that they want you to participate in and the joyful observance of God's Sabbath day? 
This is something that's actually very relevant and comes up very often. Brethren, the holiday that is known in the common tongue as Christmas falls on a Lord's Day this year. And so some of you are going to have to be having some conversations in your immediate households about how you're going to arrange your fares and your time with your extended families in light of that. Again, I'm not saying that necessarily you can't even uh, spend any time whatsoever with your family on, on that actual Lord's Day. Uh, that's not what I'm saying at all, but you need to make sure that you are arranging and planning your affairs in order to be faithful to God's calendar. Very often when man's calendar seems to come in conflict with God's calendar, men choose their own desires. But we don't have that option as Christians. And it's a joyful thing to know that God has not burdened us with having to be enslaved to man's laws and man's calendar. And so head of households, you may have to make some tough decisions and you may need to shield your families from some of the blowback that may come. Now the point in, in going through all of this is not to leave you with the impression that the main point of 1 Samuel 13 was about family relations. It's not. But the point is that obedience is going to be costly. And when you start making these kinds of decisions and potentially have to break off relationships or distance yourself from people who refuse uh, to allow your family to function in the way that God has said it, there are going to be costs involved, and they can take different forms. For some of you, those costs are going to be financial. This could involve things like inheritances, large and small. Uh, that may seem dramatic, but it is entirely possible, and has happened to many Christians, where they have broken from their families in order to remain faithful with God and have been disinherited. You have to be ready for that. It could be much smaller things like gifts or meals or clothes for the kids, things that you're used to receiving from certain family members that if you have to actually distance yourself from them may no longer be available to you. It could be the security blanket of knowing, well, if things go really bad in the economy, at least I've got these people who are more established and they'll be my sort of security blanket and, and they won't let my family and I starve. Are you willing to make those sacrifices if the Word of God necessitates you to do so? For some of you, the, the cost may not be financial so much as personal conveniences. Who's going to babysit my kids if we have to distance ourselves from so-and-so who's usually watching them? It's going to get harder to plan. But brethren, may I just remind you, that's why we have one another. Now, I'm not saying you, you know, I use uh, my parents to watch my children when I go to a dentist appointment or something from time to time. That's fine. I'm not saying you can't do those kind of things. But if you have to make those decisions and make those severances, you've got an entire family of people who are called to love and serve one another. And let me just exhort the rest of you, or, or anyone who's not in this situation, if you know of a brother or sister who's had to distance themselves from, from those who uh, may help them watching kids and stuff like that, make yourself available. Make yourself known. We are here to support and love one another who are trying to render obedience. And so let's have an atmosphere that is conducive to that. And lastly, one of the costs might not just be convenience or financial. It could be emotional. You know, the, we're human beings. We're not robots. We're made with relationships. And the breaking off of any relationship is typically hard, or at least the distancing from it. Having strife is not easy. And so you may have to endure a little bit of emotional turmoil or, or even the, the general stigma of being those people in your family. You may have to just bear up under that and say, you know what? The reproaches of Christ are worth it. They are worth it. So are you willing to count the cost? Now this is just one example, the example of family members. There are infinite almost amounts of ways in which we have to be willing to endure costs to render obedience. But brethren, we have great encouragement from our Lord Jesus. For He said that those who make these decisions, He even used the example of family, those who gave up sons and daughters and fathers and mothers, will receive a hundredfold. They'll receive a hundredfold. He is the blessing that we receive. 
He is the blessing that we receive. And He is sufficient and enough. And so let me encourage you, brethren, no matter what cost you have to endure to obedience, you have been given tremendous promises from God that no eye can see or mind imagine the reward that awaits those who are found standing faithful in Him on the last day. So let us go into prayer with that general mindset of exhortation that we are wanting to render obedience to the Lord because we love Him. Let's pray.